0: Good morning, church family. Thank you for that wonderful song. Wasn't expecting that. And I would say, as it goes in my family, we we like to prank and joke on each other, but due to the passage today, I can't do that because that would be retaliation. Um, this, but to be honest, I'll have to start this way. To be honest, this passage has been difficult for me this week. Uh, I have to admit, this is not easy. Um, especially once you start asking different questions about it and going down the rabbit holes, they can get pretty deep. And when you start looking at the message of this passage and placing it up against your past experiences, that's when it, that's when it gets real. That's when it gets tough. I know what it's like to feel bitter. I know what it's like to be on the short end of the stick. I know what it's like to be bullied in school. I I know what it's like to want to get even. And that's what makes this passage difficult. We can read it and look at it for face value and think, oh yeah, that's a good sentiment, good principle. But when we start examining it, our own lives and applying it to ourselves, it's not so simple and it's not so easy. So let's read it again and then back up and try to put it into context of where we've been so far in chapter five. All right. Matthew five thirty-eight through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So let's begin by retracing some of our steps here. We started in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. The marks of a true follower of God. Blessed is the one who will inherit the kingdom. Jesus taking our ideas, taking the audience's ideas of what was good and powerful and acceptable and successful and turning it upside down. Then we move on to verse 17 and we look at Jesus' relationship to the law. Wondering what is he going to do? And he says... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Now this will be very important later. As we see that Jesus, even though in the New Testament he says, I give you a new law that you love one another. He, that doesn't mean that he has come to break The old law. That's going to be important here in a little bit. Then we have the call to righteousness that really shapes the rest of the chapter in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have shocked the audience. What do you mean? You mean these successful men that we have looked up to all of our lives that that serve as our conduit to God the Father? You're saying that our righteousness has to exceed theirs, there's no way. There's no way we could follow the law like they do. And Jesus said, oh, it's more than that. It's more than you think. And he, he gives us six real life examples that we've been going through the last few weeks. He gives us the example of anger and murder, equating hatred for a brother to the act of murder in God's eyes. He talks about lust and adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths and promises. Today, he's going to talk about retaliation and revenge. And that is leading up to the last real life example that we'll get to next week about loving our enemies. He's saying, oh no, you think you follow the letter of the law, but I'm going to show you how wrong you are. These verses and this call to righteousness are really pointing us to the end of the sermon. Chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, where Jesus is going to separate the true followers from the false ones. The true followers from the hypocrites. These verses instruct us on how our relationship with the law was supposed to be. The law was never intended to be a checklist that we check off as we earn our own righteousness and our own perfection. Because that's really what the Pharisees were doing. Check. Check, check. In fact, the law was to point out the opposite. That it was humanly impossible to be righteous without relying on God's goodness and His grace. And by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had twisted this into some kind of caution tape. They were using using it like a boundary. They said, "All right, the letter of the law says this. So I can go right up to it as long as I don't cross it. And I'll still be okay with God. I'll still be righteous. Jesus says, nope. It's not that at all. Kind of like children with their parents, right? You tell them this is the line that you don't cross, they'll be like, okay, right here. (laughs) At least mine do. And you're like, all right, kid, where's your heart really at here? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's exactly what these real life examples point out the impurity in our hearts and how far away from righteousness we really are. Now, this passage can be used controversially. So I want to talk very clearly about, first, about what Jesus is not saying, okay? We need to look at what Jesus is not saying here. He is not saying um, this to governing authorities. This passage applies to individuals and their their individual reactions. So he is not instructing governments to ignore their primary duties. And we see this further explained in Romans 13. Paul explains it. He says, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, the governments that exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers," here we go, "...are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will, you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So he is not saying to the government, lay down your weapons. Disband your armies. You know, let go of the police force. He's not saying that. In fact, we see that God has established governments for two primary purposes. One to uphold justice and the other to protect its citizens. Any good government must do those two things. That's their job. We consistently see that in the Old Testament as well as the New. So we have to put out of our minds this passage isn't a command for governments to shirk their duties and ignore the dangers and actions of other countries, nor does it prevent a government from policing itself. One thing that Jesus is not saying here. Second thing that he's not saying, and this one's tougher. He's not saying that Christians cannot defend themselves or their loved ones from serious harm. If you look up this passage and you do a quick Google search and you start reading different commentaries, you will find good Christian scholars all over the map on this one. To what extent can the Christian defend themselves from bodily harm? or defend their loved ones. And some well-known, well-respected scholars go fully on the passive side, and some go on the other side. And so I want to find a place in the middle when it comes to self-defense. This passage, as I've been reading it, I don't think it refers to the prevention of bodily harm. It's Referring to our reaction after a transgression has already taken place. That's what this is talking about. And when you look at the Bible as a whole, you see many examples, both old and new, where it's a good thing that people were defending themselves. You have Nehemiah, the people rebuilding Jerusalem. They've got the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. You have Esther. After the king sent that evil edict that um, they could kill the Jews on this certain day, Esther changed his heart. He sent out another edict saying they could defend themselves, and it was a good thing. In the New Testament, you have this interesting passage where Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to have to buy swords. And they said, well, we, we have two. And he says, oh, that's enough. Now, you can debate on what that passage there means. But the point is, is that the disciples, as they were walking around with Jesus, carried swords. And nowhere do we see Jesus condemning them for it. And I think this was a practical thing. I mean, they had to go into unknown and maybe sometimes dangerous places, or places they thought were dangerous. And they were carrying, some of them were carrying the money box. And they had to keep it safe for the protection of the ministry. And so we don't ever see them using it, until the night Jesus was arrested, and that was a bad thing. <laughs> but having them, Jesus never condemns. So it is my opinion, as I read this, as I look at other passages in the Bible, that he's not talking about turning the other cheek and not exercising a right to self defense. However, there is a proper and an improper way to abuse self defense. We are not looking for the first excuse to exercise a means of violence towards another human being. We as Christians, above all other people, are the ones who have to value life the most. Because we understand that every person on earth, Muslim, Jew, Christian, atheist, and everything else, every person on earth was made in the image of God and therefore has inherent value and worth So if you are in a position, and I hope that I won't be and I hope you won't be, to use self-defense, then check your motives. Are you acting out of a desire of love to save a life, or are you acting out of anger or vengeance or retaliation, a feeling of pride or self-righteousness? Be careful. Self-defense is permissible, but we don't use self-defense to justify something that's sinful. God does not condone getting even, as we are going to see in this passage. So what does Jesus say? What is Jesus saying here? First of all, we've kind of already touched on it. Jesus is saying, look, you, the Pharisees, the scribes, your leaders, everybody, you've missed the point. You have missed the point of the law. What was that law that he's referencing? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, it's mentioned three different times in the Old Testament, but I want to bring out the time that it was mentioned in Leviticus. Moses was getting the law from God, giving it to the people. Leviticus 24, 17 through 22 says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture... Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. All right, so that's a pretty strong Old Testament law. And Jesus is not saying that that is not a good law. He's not saying that we need to break it couple of things about this. Number one, this law was given to the government of Israel. This law was intended to direct them on how to govern. Not individual revenge. And secondly, just something for us to know in context here. Scholars think that 90% and maybe 99% of the time, this was not taken literally. This was meant... To make sure that there would be justice. And so what would happen is they would, if you did something to your neighbor and he lost an arm, you wouldn't necessarily have your arm cut off, but you would have to pay an amount equal to the loss of an arm. And I don't know how they set that amount, but they did. Or if you did something that took a, a sheep from a neighbor, then you would have to give him one of your sheep. So many times that's how this law was enacted, but it was a good law. It made sure that everyone within this government was treated fairly and equally. It made sure that crimes were not over-punished and crimes were not under-punished. So it was good. But they missed the point. They had twisted this law to serve their own interests and their own agenda, their own sense of pride. Instead of using these laws to help them seek righteously and good and orderly government, they were using them to see how much they could get away with. They were taking matters into their own hands. And that's not righteous justice. It's just not. So Jesus said, look, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but you've missed the point. You've missed it. What is the heart behind it? You're using it to justify your revenge, your retaliation. You're getting even. And you think, oh, I'm good with God, eye for an eye. No, but your heart is far from God. What also is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, God's righteousness is more and is better than mine, better than yours. He's saying, you think you can get away with retaliating against your neighbor, seeking revenge, Because you're following the letter of the law? No. God wants a righteousness from within. All of chapter 5 is a call to righteousness. For Jews to not only follow the letter of the law outwardly, but more importantly, to follow the heart of the law. Which is much more difficult. And that's what Jesus is getting ready to explain. You want to know the true heart of this law? Not just the letter, but the heart of this law? well then you're also going to have to abide by the law of love and grace by exercising compassion and forgiveness just as Jesus did and just as he would. He says, turn the other cheek. Endure personal insult. It's not so much the physical blow (laughs) that you would have to endure, but if you were slapped across the face, it was usually done in public by someone who didn't like you, To prove a point. And you would want to get back at them. Your reputation was damaged. You were personally insulted. Your pride was damaged. Jesus says, instead of slapping them back, turn the other cheek. Endure the insult. He also says, give him your cloak. Endure the injustice. If someone wrongfully sues you and takes you to court for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Yes, it's unjust. He knows. Give him your cloak anyway. And going the second mile, this is the one that kind of gets me. Go the second mile. Endure the loss of liberty, infringement upon your rights. Many of you know the background of this, but in case you don't, I'll explain it quickly. Rome had a law that throughout their empire, if a soldier was traveling, he could at any time upon his wishes, demand that a citizen carry his burden, carry his pack for up to a mile. That seems like, okay, that's not so bad. Putting it into our context, we seem like that's a pretty patriotic thing to do. All right, I would carry the pack of a soldier for a mile if asked, and I'd feel good about it, like I did something right. (laughs) Not so here. The Roman soldier was the symbol of everything that was wrong with the world for the Jews. The Roman soldier was their oppressor. The picture of injustice. The picture of the loss of freedom. And he could at any moment, on his whim, tell you to stop what you were doing, you would have to bend over, drop your stuff, pick up his stuff, the very stuff that he uses to keep you under his thumb, and carry it for a mile. While everybody watched, Jesus says, Yep, and go another mile. Go one more without being asked. Then he says to give to the destitute, endure inconvenience. When injustices happen to us, at least in my experience, we tend to learn from it. And we tend to want to protect ourselves in the future. And the flesh's way of doing that is to build a wall, to harden the heart, to keep that bitterness there so that it won't happen again. And Jesus is saying, no, you keep that heart open. You give to the beggar. You borrow, or you lend to the borrower. Keep your heart open. Endure inconvenience. So this is what Jesus is saying. But why does he have to say it? Well, I've already talked about how they had twisted the law, but what's behind that? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, first, our hearts as humans are bent towards revenge. Our hearts are bent towards revenge and our own sense of justice. Um, Okay, I'll have to use a personal example here. I grew up when I was, and when I was little, loving Batman, okay? Batman was my guy. And I'm not talking about the new kind of weird Batman stuff going on. The old Batman, the original cartoon, and the original reruns of the Adam West TV show, okay? Back when the special effects were actually written in words... (laughs) Okay, on the TV screen, pow, all right? (laughs) The good old days. (laughs) I can, you know, I loved Batman so much that my great-grandmother, who was good with a sewing machine, made me my own Batman costume, and I would put it on and wear it around the house and jump off the edge of the couch, okay? Okay. And I know that's putting a bad picture in your mind as I'm standing up here, but anyway, it was good. (laughs) I liked Batman and I think a lot of people like Batman because he's a unique superhero. He's not like the others. He doesn't have any special powers other than a lot of money, but he doesn't have anything special. We can relate to him. We can relate to his problems. He's a human, a normal person. And he goes out, and he does what the law can't do, and he gets vengeance. He works outside the bounds of the law. He doesn't bow to anybody. He can enact vengeance the way we all wish we could, whether you admit it or not. The problem with Batman is that I realize now that we can't be like him and be like Jesus at the same time. Batman can't be our role model, because Jesus is saying right here to do the exact opposite. But we still have this desire for revenge. And I think it comes from ultimately our pride, our sense of pride when it's hurt, we want to get even, and it ultimately comes from a lack of trust, a lack of trust in God. We we want to take it into our own hands because we don't think God will be able to take care of it. Or at least He won't take care of it as soon as we want or how we want. And so we do it ourselves. But Romans 12 reminds us. We were just there a little bit ago. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, or excuse me, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that doesn't sound like a very Batman type quote. The the TV show probably wouldn't have been that popular if that was its motto. So we have to push against our natural inclinations, to push against our heart that's bent towards vengeance. So what do we do with this? Well, we endure. We endure injustice. We endure inconvenience. We endure infringement. We endure insult. And we maybe even suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of righteousness. Just go back a few verses. Matthew 5, verse 10. All right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James 1, 2-4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So not only does enduring and suffering for the sake of the gospel and righteousness benefit us by bringing us closer to Jesus, helping us to identify with Him, but it's also the best way to defeat evil. You know what evil wants when it pushes against you? It wants you to push right back so that it'll do that. You know, when two forces come together... Kind of like that. And then there'll have to be another response and another and another, and it keeps on going up. But if evil pushes against you and finds only love, evil will run itself out of steam. It'll die on its own. Seek a godly, second thing we need to do. Not only endure, but while we are enduring patiently, we need to be seeking a godly righteousness, which is better than mine. A righteousness that comes from within and not just outward. 1 Samuel tells us, God, man sees the outside, God sees the heart. So man saw the fastidious following of the, Pharisee, of the Pharisees as they followed the law. Man saw that and thought that was great. God saw the Pharisees' hearts and said, Whoa, whitewashed tombs. We need to seek a righteousness, not of our own, not of the Pharisees, but of the of God. Righteousness that comes from within. And then finally, I think our last challenge here, and it comes from verse 41 and 42, Jesus. Is telling us to love the ones who are hard to love. Love the ones who are hard to love. When he says give to the beggar, lend to the borrower, he's not talking about lending money to the one who's rich because you know they'll pay you back. Give indiscriminately. Be generous. Don't love just the people who are easy to love. Everybody does that. And to do that, we need to keep an open heart, a soft heart, even after we've experienced injustices, which threaten to leave us jaded and bitter. Now, most of us think, okay, I can follow along with that. You know, I don't, most of us haven't had the extreme revenge situation happen to us. I'm not saying everybody, but most of us. Where it's Hatfield and McCoy type stuff going on. You know, we think, oh yeah, I would never do that. But you know what? This applies to all of us. Because guess what? Most of us in here have been wronged by a coworker at some point in time, or wronged by a boss. And we want to get even, and we want our justice. We've been passed over for a promotion that, that should have been ours. But because of this or that, we unfairly didn't get it. Most of us have been insulted by something a friend said or something that was posted on social media. Most of us have felt to some degree what it's like to have someone betray our trust. A family member even. What do we do in those situations? Because those situations are going to come at us often. Keep an open heart. Endure for the sake of the gospel. Turn the other cheek. And Jesus, you think, okay, Jesus, you can say all this stuff because you're God. Well, when you look at it, Jesus is not Saying all of these things from a position of inexperience. Jesus is going to experience every single one of these things that he just pointed out. Jesus very soon is getting ready to have his face slapped and his body beaten. Very soon he's going to have his clothes taken from him. Very soon he, he's going to have to carry a Roman burden in the form of a cross. Up a hill. And yet, he's still going to give to beggars. And you know what? We are the beggars. We're the beggars. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my life. I'm going to give you my life on this cross so that you can believe in me and accept me and become part of my kingdom. We're the beggars. And he still gives. Going back to the law, we'll end here. <clears throat> Going back to the law. Jesus didn't come to break the law. He came to fulfill it. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A life for a life. God calls us and has called humanity from the beginning, Adam and Eve, to perfection. He requires a perfect life for us, from us. A perfect life for me. And guess what? I don't have one to give him. I don't have a perfect life to give him. Even if I were to lay my life down, it wouldn't be perfect. And so I can't follow this law when it comes to my relationship with God. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, a life for a life. I have no life to give. At least not a perfect one. But Jesus did. And that was the point. That's why he lived the perfect life. That's why it mattered. So that he could perfectly fulfill this law before God an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Giving his perfect life on my behalf to satisfy this law and to fulfill it. That's the gospel. It's all been paid, God's wrath has been satisfied. For all who would believe and accept Jesus Christ. So let's leave it there and let's pray. God, thank you so much. I mean, I I can only say thank you, and that's not good enough, but thank you for saving me, for saving us, Lord. For giving Yourself to us. Living the life that we couldn't live. Dying the death that we were meant to. Lord, and ra- rising again to defeat sin and death on our behalf. Lord, You are so good and I pray, Lord, that You would call people now to You. Lord, that people would have their eyes open to Your love and Your grace, the goodness of Your gospel. And that it would change lives, Lord. And Lord, for all of us in this room, God, that you would help us endure patiently the trials of this life. Lord, that our endurance, our compassion, would be a bright gospel witness in this world. And Lord, that you would use that to change people's lives. And draw more people to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.